So you guys know I'm a big soccer fan. So when I saw that story this summer during the, the, the World Cup, it just kind of came out uh, as a human interest story. It just kind of made me smile. Here's a, here's a part-time math teacher that makes $40 a day. But he, he was, he, he loves the game of soccer so much. He was willing, you know, cause he can't, he couldn't get from India to, to Russia the traditional way, like on a plane. So he decided what's the cheapest way I can, I can do, do to get there. So he rode his bike 2,300 miles to go to the World Cup. I would say that's commitment, don't you? I mean, that guy's committed to the game of soccer. And, and, and commitment is what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, we are today wrapping up our study that has taken us most of the fall in the book of Nehemiah. Most churches, when they study Nehemiah, it's just one through six. We're going to take one extra week. I'm going to show you why. Grab your study guide. I'm going to give you the outline in the form of a graph in terms of what's going on in the book of Nehemiah and, and what, how we're transitioning and why it matters. So chapters one through six, which is what we spent most of our time doing, the main activity, they're rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. The main guy and character is a guy called Nehemiah. And the main purpose is restoration. We've been kind of applying it to us, right? You take the principles of rebuilding a wall and we've applied it to rebuilding our marriage and rebuilding our finances and rebuilding our career. And it's kind of been interesting, kind of fun. But in chapter seven, there is a distinct change of direction, right? And it's why a lot of people stop at chapter six, right? So in chapter seven through 13, the main activity transitions between rebuilding a wall to now reinvigorating a people. If, if chapters 1 through 6 is about real estate, chapters 7 through 13 is about people. It's one thing to build a city around, a, a wall around the city, and now it's about building up the people that are living within the city. Do you understand the difference? So now, because of that, Nehemiah takes a step back, and a new individual comes to the forefront. His name is Ezra. He's kind of the pastor, the priest, the Levite that steps up because it's a different task. You don't need a builder anymore, Nehemiah. Now you need someone else that has different kind of skills. And the primary purpose is commitment. Commitment. So the next couple chapters, they're just just hammering away at different commitments that are significant and important for us. Here's the way I thought about it. If, If a guy is willing to ride his bicycle from India to Russia... Because of his passion for soccer, his love for soccer, his commitment for soccer, I would think that our love, our passion, and our commitment to Jesus Christ would cause us to up our ante and go all in with God. What do you think? That's what we're talking about this morning. What does that look like? So all the verses today are going to be on the screen because I am handpicking a couple from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and I'm going to show you each chapter the main commitment and why it matters. Does that make sense? So here's number one, if you're jotting down notes, commitment to team. Commitment to team. I'll explain to you what that means here in a minute. Uh, I've given you a couple verses from chapter 7, verse 6. Here's what it says. It's on the screen. These are the people of the province who came up from captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into captivity. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town in the company of Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Misrepeth, Bigvag, Nehom, and Baana. The descendants of Parosh were 2,172. The descendants of Shephiah, 372. The descendants of Ara, 652. Of Parath Moab, 2,818. Of Alam, 1,254. Of Zatu, 
845. Now, let's just stop right there. I've given you just verses 6 to 16. But if you notice on the screen, this kind of verse goes on through verse 68. Now, be honest. When you're reading through scripture and you get to a chapter like this, what do you do? Come on, you skip it. I know it. You're not supposed to, but you're like, I'm just getting out past this as quick as I can. Because what is going on here? How lame is this? Well, time out. Everything in scripture scripture is there for a purpose. What's the purpose here? Well, what's happening is that God, through Nehemiah, he is trying to hammer away for 68 verses. And here's what he's trying to help us understand. Listen, my strategy to reach a world that is far from God has and will always be, look what's highlighted on the screen, people. It's not through programs, it's people. It's not through organizations, it's people. I'm not going to write my message in the clouds. No, I'm going to put my message within you and you, the people, are going to spread the news. And most specifically, not individual people, but a group of people or a team of people, which the New Testament refers to as a local church, or in this case, Team Bay Hills. That's what he's talking about here. One of the interesting details, did you notice right at the end of those last verses that he doesn't round up? I mean, think about that for a moment. Parosh, 2,172. Why doesn't he just say 2,200? Why doesn't he round up? Shephaya, the family, seven, 372. Why not 375 or 400? Just round up for credit, right? Why? He's trying to, listen, every person and individual matters. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 10, 11, 12, 13. You don't go, ah, more or less 200. No, every individual matters when it comes to Team Bay Hills. Now, it's interesting how he starts out the chapter. Let's put those verses on the screen. Verses one through three. After the wall had been rebuilt. Notice who he recruits. The gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed or recruited. Then I put in charge of Jerusalem, my brother Hanani. Interesting, he's the same dude in chapter one that goes to the court where Nehemiah is working and tells him about the mess going on in Jerusalem. In chapter one, we thought brother meant like Jewish brother. But in this chapter, there's a little bit of hint and indication that, oh my goodness, maybe brother means like literally a brother. We don't know for sure, but this guy shows up again and he's made mayor of Jerusalem or something to that equivalent, right? I put in charge of Jerusalem, my brother Hanani, because he was a man of integrity and he feared God. Then I said to the people, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. And it goes on and on. A little bit later on, God put it onto my heart, the people. Now, it's not exhaustive, but I want to give you at least three characteristics of effective teams. Effective teams do at least three things. Let's put it on the screen. Number one, effective teams value everyone. Did you notice who he recruits? Gatekeepers, singers, and Levites. Gatekeepers, as in the organizational or military types. Singers, as in the creative types. And Levites, as in the leader or teacher types. Why? Because when it comes to a team, whether it's a business team or a sports team or a family or a church, everybody and everyone's gifts matter. You don't want everybody to do quarterback, everybody to be running back, everybody to do sales, everybody to do accounting. No, you need different people with different skills. Everybody's valued because we all bring something to the table. That's the point. 
Second characteristics is effective teams have good leaders. Now, when it comes to leadership, whether it's political leadership, business leadership, educational leadership, church leadership, whatever leadership you want to say, when this book speaks of leadership, it's very interesting what it puts at the top. Now, what we tend to do, like if you're in the process of hiring someone or trying to get a job, you try and promote your competency to get the job done. So if you're a business leader or business owner and you're trying to hire a salesperson, you want that person to be competent to make sales. If you're a restaurant owner and you're trying to hire a a cook, you want them to be competent to make a plate of dish that people want to pay for it. That's competency. But when it comes to leadership, this book says there's something that's more important than competency, and it's called character. Character. I want you to notice, he chooses Hanani not because, you know, he's really good at managing people, not because he can really put a budget together, not because he can work with the councilmen in the different boroughs and neighborhoods of the city of Jerusalem. doesn't say that. You know why I picked him, he says? Because he was a man of integrity and he feared God. Make no mistake about it, whether it's the business world, the sports world, or the church world. Now, ideally, you want both, right? You want someone that has character and competency. But in the context of thinking about leadership, character always comes first. Always comes first. The last one is that effective teams are balanced. Here's what I mean by that. I've given you a little phrase from verse 3 and a little phrase from verse 5. What you see right at the beginning of the chapter is that Nehemiah and Ezra have the ability to balance between being task-focused and being people-focused and being task-focused and being people-focused and being task-focused and being people-focused. Task-focused. First two, three verses. It's interesting. Nehemiah goes on this diatribe about when the gates should be open and make sure they're not open at this time of day. And when you open them, make sure the sun is hot. I mean, he just goes on and on. I don't know why. There's got to be a reason. I didn't take the time to dig in and study it, but he gives them a to-do list of what they're supposed to do. Task focus, right? But then a little bit later on in verse five, there's this, you would call it, the best thing you could call it is a tender moment. And he says, you know what? I have a heart for people. And when it comes to teams, You want to be task-focused, and you want to be people-focused, and you want to be task-focused, and you want to be people-focused. They both matter. Now, in the context of us, a church, Team Bay Hills, the people-focus seems so much more godly. We're about people. We're about encouraging people. We're about loving people. We're about praying for people. We're about saving people. It sounds so godly, but time out. There's also tasks that need to get done. Can you imagine you showed up this morning and no one set up the chairs? You'd be like, are we standing today? What the heck's going on? Right? Can you imagine? No one printed the bulletins. No one made the slides. Those are all tasks. No one practiced the music. No one put a sermon together. No one was scheduled to do tech. No one was scheduled to work with the kids. You had to drag them into big church with you. No one went about the task of making coffee, putting the bagels and donuts out. Oh my goodness, pandemonium would break out. That's a task that needs to get done. That's why we come to church. Task is important. And people are important. Now, you don't want to just, just task, just task, just task. At some point in time, you've got to look someone in the eye and go, time out. I know you said you're okay, but I'm looking through your eyes and something tells me you're not okay. Girl, what's going on? Guy, what? So it's both. And don't make the mistake of thinking. By the way, all of us have a tendency towards one or another. Don't pretend that you're perfectly balanced. Identify which one you tend toward and pull yourself in the opposite direction a little bit. 
I bumped into an um, article from a small little town in Oregon. They put it in their newspaper, and uh, they had this image that they put online. Lost nose. Have you seen our beloved 50-pound nose? Now, you see there's a picture. Do you see the tennis shoes in the background? Do you see the tennis shoes? It shows you the size of the nose. Maybe you accidentally picked it. You notice the double, double entendre there. Thinking it was your own reward. I'll explain what that's about in a little bit. For information resulting in the safe return of our nose, nose question asked. Let me read to you the story that was put in the paper in Oregon at this little town. When most people complain about a running nose, they don't expect it to go missing. Delia Albert, however, is not most people. Albert and her family are proud owners of a two-foot-tall, 50-pound plastic nose, or they were until someone swiped it off their porch. Her husband, who is a local ad man, had rescued it from the trash after it had been used as a prop for an advertising campaign. For about a year, the family displayed the nose in a variety of humorous poses, including last year's Halloween, when they placed a candy dish below it with a sign, please pick one. Since the nose was taken, Albert's school children have been distraught. So actually, what happened is the kids took their, took their piggy, ba- uh, piggy bank money as a reward. That's the $6.27. Albert said, we didn't realize how attached our, our kids were to it. It clearly brought them a lot of joy. At her insistence, at the children's insistence, Albert filed a police report to declare it stolen. In the local news report, she included an email address for everyone who might have the information as to the nose's whereabouts. No questions asked, Albert said. We just want our nose back. And it was kind of a cute little story. It popped up on my browser when I opened up my computer one day. And as soon as I saw it, my mind immediately went to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because in Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about different body parts. And specifically... He talks about a nose. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put it up on the screen. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Just as the body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, the whole body. And to make sure we understand what he's talking about, he's not literally talking about about a body. He's figuratively talking about us, the church. We are the body. It has many parts. And he says, if, if the whole body were an eye, in, in other words, if that's the only skill we had, All we could do is see. We can't walk. We can't hold things. We can't breathe. We can't hear. But we can see really good. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, here it comes. Where would the the sense of smell be? And just like this little small paper in Oregon, the Apostle Paul would say, I'm missing a nose. And as the lead pastor at Team Bay Hills, you know what I would say? We're missing a couple ushers. And we're missing a couple tech people. And we're missing a couple musicians. And we're missing a couple kids workers and a couple youth workers. We're missing a couple office people. We're missing a couple small group leaders. See, the, the, the point of saying we believe in team is not a philosophical point. It's practical. For us to do what we are meant to do, this is what it means. Whenever you get to the point where you decide, this is my home church. And it takes a little while. I'm fine with that. Just keep showing up until you decide that. But once you decide that, 
You have to make a decision from a biblical standpoint to get down off the stands and get into the playing field. Why? Because without that, it's the equivalent of we're missing a nose, we're missing an eye, we're missing our hearing. Now, I get it. Different, different st- stages of life, you know, different ages, different... Con- I get that. I'm f- completely fine with that. Some of us can give a little time. Some of us can get more time. You've got to figure out a way. How can I participate? How can I contribute? Why? Because making a difference means a commitment to team, a commitment to the body of God. The second one is a commitment to the word of God. Chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1 through 3 says this, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, so he noticed the change, the baton is being passed from Nehemiah to Ezra. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law. Ezra read it aloud from daybreak until noon. They stood and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, here it comes, for a quarter of the day. Six hours. Let me ask you a question. Just be honest. If if our services were six hours long, two hours for singing, one hour for prayer, three hours for sermon, be honest, most of us would be like, I'm going to go check out Valley Bible. (laughs) Six hours for church. That is now. I get it. It's a special occasion. We just finished the wall. Yay! High five. So they have the special long service. But crying out loud, six hours, and they stood. I think we should try that some Sunday. Why should I be the only one that has to stand? (laughs) Sorry, that just slipped out. (laughs) There's at least three or four things. When when we talk about commitment to the word of God, there's three or four things that we need to do. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. First, is it very simply requires time and effort requires time and effort let's get the next slide up there when it says quarter of the day now you know me i'm not trying to twist your arm i'm not trying to throw you under the bus but it's right there it's a softball question i got to ask you so they spent six hours reading and listening to the bible in one day how many hours did you spend reading the bible this week ouch Now, does it have to be six hours? No. But it has to be more than two, three minutes sometimes. Now, is that good? Yeah, I'd have a little snack of the Bible. But every once in a while, you have to understand the value of a prolonged period of time where you're reading and or studying. That's, there's value to that, right? So all, the only point I'm trying to make right now is, listen, commitment to the Word of God isn't just some philosophical principle. No, it's going to take your time and your effort. The second thing is really applies to, 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 to what you're doing right now. The right attitude at the end of verse three, it says that the people listened attentively. Now I got to tell you, my opinion is that my job on Sunday morning is a lot easier than your job because me flapping my mouth for 35, 40 minutes is easy for me. If you know me, (laughs) but what you got to do for 35, 40 minutes, much harder to listen attentively to a teacher. By the way, the only reason I give you the study guide, only reason is to help you do this. It's the only reason. I could care less if you keep it. I don't care at all. But educational theory has said that when you have notes and you write a couple things down and you see it on paper, not only does it help you follow, not only does it help you listen, but it helps you assimilate it. So all I'm saying, I don't care if you use it or not, 
But if you don't know what's happening in your brain, you're having to work twice as hard. Because it's, it's hard to listen sometimes. Let's just be honest. Time and effort, right attitude. Now the next one's my job, right approach. Right approach. I'm going to read to you all of verse 8 from chapter 8. I gave in you the main thesis there, but listen to all. It's my job description. Listen. They read from the book of the law, making it clear. He's speaking of Ezra. They read from the book of the law, making it clear, giving it meaning. Watch. So that the people understood what was being read. Have you ever gone to a church, visited a church, been part of a church where they give off this vibe and sometimes they literally say, yeah, no, we're we're the kind of church that goes deep into the word of God. We go deep, which is code for the pastor teaches us Greek words, Hebrew words. You what you guys are doing, Nehemiah, eight weeks Last, last year, we did Book of Nehemiah for 64 weeks. We went deep into the Word of God. It sounds so godly, right? Like we're just playing church. But I've been to those churches well and visited and been part of those churches well. And okay, they may go quote-unquote deep, but I also look around and it seems to me that half the congregation don't have a clue what the pastor's talking about. It doesn't impress me one bit. I, I love the study of communication and teaching. I spend a lot of time studying it. And I'm not impressed at all by a teacher, a preacher, a university professor. When after you walk out of the lecture hall or after you walk out of the church, you say something like this. Boy, boy, was the, boy are they smart. I don't have a clue what they're saying, but they are smart. Doesn't help anybody. And, and I, I'm telling you this not only because it's in the text, but because it's part of our philosophy. By the way, am I against 60 weeks of the book of Nehemiah? No, we just don't do it Sunday morning. It's called small group Bible studies. And we have studies that go along into certain things and deep into certain things, or at least deeper than we go on Sunday morning. Now, if you and I put time and effort into this book, if you, if you work hard to listen attentively, if I do my part and make it clear and meaningful, and understandable, then look at the last one. That all should result in a right response on our, on our part. Right. Let me read verse 6, Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra praised the Lord. That's part of the response. The great God and all the people lifted their hands and responded. So let me just be clear. You can fill out the notes. You can memorize scripture. You can go to discipleship class, small group Bible study, listen to podcasts. But if you don't apply it and respond to the word of God, you are wasting your time. It's all about the response, not about I agree. They responded and they said, amen, amen, which is just just means I agree. That's all that word means. I agree. Then they bowed down, they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So last week, I talked to you about one of the things we need to do is, hey, wake up. We're involved in spiritual warfare, right? We're not going to get freaky about it. We're not going to get weird about it, right? But the Bible says that a lot of the conflict we have and a lot of the issues we have, and it's not just person to person or flesh to flesh. There's this spiritual world among us right and understand that you fight not against flesh and blood paul says in ephesians 6 but principalities and powers now in the context of that 
I want to bring it together with what we're talking about right now, which is our commitment to the word. Let me show you what Paul says in that specific passage. Ephesians six. Here's what he says. Put on the full armor of God. He's not talking literally. He's talking spiritually. You're in warfare. So put the armor of God on so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You have an enemy. So protect yourself. And then he goes on verse after verse after verse, and he starts talking about the different pieces of armor that we can put on spiritually to defend ourselves. And this is how he ends. I want you to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. But then he tells us what that is. That's the word of God. It's the word of God. By the way, all the different pieces of armor he talks about, the sword is the only one that's both defensive and offensive. You not only protect yourself from the um, oncoming enemy, but you can attack the enemy with the sword. Let's talk swords for a moment. Um, So a little while ago, our church administrator went over to Party City and bought me this sword. So this is a little samurai sword, a little plastic sword. Doesn't do anything, doesn't hurt much at all, right? It's just, it's a plastic sword. It's what a kid would wear, you know, at Halloween and they go trick-or-treating, trick-or-treating, you know, they're a pirate or something, I don't know, something like that. It's a samurai sword, just to prove. So Todd Takaki, could you come over here real quick now? So now, if you participate in the service, you don't have to do offerings. So that's just, just, just a, so what I want you to do is put your arm out. So I just want to show you, does that hurt? Hey, no. <laughs> does that hurt? Is that, is that making any blood? You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, thank you. That's all I wanted to show you. So now what I'd like to do is I'd like to show you another, another sword. See this? It's got a knife here. Yeah. Bet you didn't know your pastor it was a samurai pa- pastor right here. Now, this is a replica samurai sword. This actually, uh, my, my good friend, Lake Herbert, let me borrow this. But then like a week later, his new bride, Veronica, called me and said, no, you can have it. I don't want it in the house. So thank you, Veronica, very much. So now this, it's a replica, but it's sharp, right? It's very sharp. So Takaki, what I need you to just, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Okay, you ready? When you go into spiritual battle, what kind of sword are you holding? Now, let me help you understand. If you have a casual, remember, the sword of the spirit is your relationship to the word of God. If you have a casual relationship with God's word, what does that mean? Casual relationship means you believe in it. Yeah, I believe it's God's word. But come on, let's just be honest. It's just me and you. You don't read it during the week. You don't go to Bible study or discipleship class. You barely make it to church one or two Sundays a month. Now, I'm just saying, just be honest with yourself. Your relationship with God's word is casual. It's better than non-existent, but it's casual. But what you need to understand, if that's your relationship with the word of God, you go into spiritual warfare with this. Now, what do you think the enemy is thinking when he sees you with this? Does it make sense why you keep getting beat up by him? But if your relationship to the word of God is a little more serious. If you make a point to try and read it every day, I mean, it's not six hours like the people in Jerusalem, but it's at least 10 minutes. And sometimes I miss it, but you know, then I try and catch up. I'll take Saturday off, but if I'm in town, I'm here. And yeah, you know, I, you know, I work during the day, but 
you know, I understand the value of Bible study. I understand the value of discipleship classes. So I'd prefer to go home and rest and binge watch Netflix and have dinner. But I go to discipleship class. I memorize scripture every once in a while. I even listen to podcasts. In other words, if you fall into that category, this is your sword of the spirit. So the question is, are you here or are you here? Or where are you in between? See, this is a big deal because commitment to the word of God, this is not a theological principle. It actually makes a difference when you walk out those doors. Does that make sense? Don't forget that visual. We'll put that here. Don't let anyone play with this because I'm get sued. Someone gets stabbed with a samurai sword and shirt. Okay, let's go to the next one. I won't spend as much time the last two. Chapter 9, the commitment is a, a decision to confess. Chapter 9, verse 1. The Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. Now, I kept that in there because if you've read much of the Bible or any of it at all, that's code for they're setting themselves up for confession and repentance. They're putting sackcloth on, which is very itchy. They're taking dust and they're patting it on their head. It's this idea like my head is now dirty, just like my soul is dirty, and I'm getting ready to confess. They gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth, putting dust on their heads. They stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter day, listen, and spent another quarter of the day in confession. Now, time out. Why so long? Are you telling me that they had that many more sins to confess than we have? That's not, that's not the answer. The answer is in the text. Look at the text. Do you see what's happening just before they confess? You see, he, they're spending so much time in this book, reading it, studying it, understanding it. The more you understand this book, the more you start to realize how far you and I fall short of God's ideal standard. This is what drives you to confession. Amen. It's sad to say, but when's the last time we confessed and how long did it take us? Like 12 seconds? The other thing, do you see the other thing I have underlined there? Why are they confessing the sins of their ancestors? I mean, so if I pray for the sins of my grandparents, all my grandparents are deceased. So if I pray for them, is this telling me that God forgives their sins because I'm praying for them? Is that what that's saying? You don't, I don't get to retroactively pray for my family from ages ago and pray for their sins. That's, that's other different faiths, not the Christian faith. So why is it in the text? Why am I praying for my sins and the sins of my ancestors? This is interesting because this is when the world of psychology or psychologists and theologians come together and man, does it fit together? Does it overlap? And they both agree. Let me ask you the question. Follow me. Why are you the way you are? Well, some of it is, I, you know, we are all born uniquely. That's the, that's the beauty of the human race. We're unique. Not, not, not only just how we look different, but our personalities. But how about the rest of us? Do you, do you want to know why you are the way you are, why I, I am the way I am? 
a huge part of it is because of mom and dad. Why, why do you do Thanksgiving the way you do? Christmas the way you do? Why do you treat your kids or parent them the way you do? Why do you spend the money the way you do? Why do you drive the way you do? All of that stuff, so much of it is mom and dad. Did you ever grow up as a teenager? Yeah, I'm never going to do what mom and dad does. That's lame. And then later on in life, you're talking like them. You're walking like them. You're, right? Have you ever done that? You can't like get rid of it. So what they're saying is, yeah, when you're praying for the sins of your ancestors, you know what you're really doing? Here's what you're doing. If grandpa has issues and sins and doesn't deal with them, he's going to pass them on to dad. And if dad has those same issues and those same sins and doesn't do anything to him, he's going to pass them on to son. And if the son has those same sins and those same issues and doesn't do anything to them, he's going to pass them on to grandson. So what you actually have as you're praying for the sins of your ancestors, you're praying for the dysfunctional family issues you are passing on from generation to generation. Now, we love to talk about, well, yeah, I know my whole family, you know, you know, alcoholism is in our family. We go there. But how about pride or lust or anger or the way we spend our money? Guys, a big part of what we are to do. I remember my parents saying this to me. Your job, David, is to take the good we had, we gave you and enhance it and to identify the bad in our family and eliminate it. Because if I don't eliminate it, I pass it on to Josh, Jessica, and Julia, and they will pass it on to my grandkids someday. So have the ability to introspectively look at yourself and be honest about your family. The good and the not so good. That's what's going on there. Let me real quickly give you what effective confession looks like. This is not in your study guide. This is just bonus material because it's Thanksgiving week. Just wanted to bless you. I just forgot to get it in. Specificity. Specificity. Tell God and tell others exactly what you did wrong. I have heard Christians actually pray this. Watch. Here it comes. It's always, almost always during a mealtime. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the food and the hands that have prepared it. And uh, we, uh, we uh, are, are grateful for our friends and our family that are gathered today for this fellowship time and a meal. And if we've sinned against you, we pray that you would forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. And when they pray that, I want to reach over the table, slap them upside the head, kick them in the throat, and go, if? What, what's this if? Oh, uh, oh, if, Sandy, I said something to you in the last month that bothered you, I'm sorry. Whatever, maybe I said something. That's not how confession works. You're specific. You remember that last time, that, that time a couple days ago when I raised my voice and I said things that I shouldn't have said, that I'm sorry for that. See, this works not only with God, it, it works with people. If there's anything I've ever done to offend you, I, 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 I what, have the courage to think back. What, what have you done to offend other people or upset other people? The other is ownership. Please stop blaming your parents. Stop blaming your kids. Stop blaming your president. Stop blaming the educational system. Stop blaming your neighbor. Stop blaming your boss. Do all those things contribute to an environment that maybe causes me to do something I should? Of course. We influence each other. But don't blame them. Your response is your responsibility. Well, you know, the reason I said what I said is because you did. No, no. I said what I said because I have sin in me. And I'm sorry, which leads to the next one. You got to apologize. You got to actually say it. I was wrong. Please forgive me. 
Could I encourage you, parents, you've got to teach your kids to say these words. It's important. By the way, you want to know how your kids are going to learn it? When they hear it from you. When you say it to your spouse. When you say it to them. When's the last time you apologized to your kids? We all do things as parents. We're trying our best or whatever. We snap a little bit. Hey, I'm sorry. You say that to them, you're setting them up to say, you're not lowering yourself as a person when you say, I'm sorry. You're actually elevating yourself as a person of maturity. Learn to say thank you, please, and I'm sorry quickly and often. And the last one is change. It's what the Bible calls repentance, right? So if I, if I take my samurai sword and I cut my friend Todd Takaki, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. But if I come at him the next day and cut him again and the day after and cut him some more, well, then after a while, my apologies. Don't, sorry about that. It just, that, that illustration fit. Um, my, my apology doesn't, it sounds hollow, right? And so the same, when we do the same things to people around us over and, and over and, and over again, work at it. Whatever it is, you're, why, we all have issues. Here's the last one. So we've been talking about a commitment to team, a commitment to scripture and the word of God, a commitment to confession. The last one is a commitment to give, chapter 10. So I, I grew up, I came from a church in Chicago before I came to Bay Hills. I kid you not. Every service, we had two to three offerings during the service. We had the regular offering. Then we had the missions offering. Then we had the compassion offering. I remember one time the chairman of the board stood up and said, mm, the uh, AC bill was a little higher than we thought this uh, month. We're going to have the ushers come back down. Praise the Lord Jesus. Let's go. Four offerings in one service. I was like, what the heck is going on here? And then I read Nehemiah chapter 10, and it's the same thing. I kid you not, there's all these offerings. Watch. We assume responsibility. Now, this is the, the people speaking. We assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of the shekel each year for the service of the house of God. Now, you and I, we talk about a tithe, 10%. This is talking about a third. This is a completely different offering. Once a year, he wants this special one-third of something Completely different offering. A couple more, watch. And, and, and also, for the regular grain offering, that's another offering, and the burnt offering, that's another offering, for all the duties of the house of our God. So that's mentioned like eight times, the house of God and, and the idea of ministry. We also resp- assume responsibility for bringing into the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops, and we will bring a tithe of our crops. Now, that's what we are accustomed to hearing. Tithing as an Old Testament law, New Testament principle, and it's something we think about, right? I will bring a tithe of our crops in the, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. Now, last phrase, look at it. Who's supposed to do this? The people of Israel, the people, that would be you. Now watch, including the Levites. You know who that is? That would be me. That would be the staff. I, I want to, I don't know if I've ever said this. I've said some of you should know this. But just because I'm not sitting with you when the ushers come down with the Kentucky Fried Chicken back buckets for offering, right? Don't think for one moment that I don't give to this church. Sandy and I tithe to this church. One-tenth of everything we make comes right here. And I say that as an example, not as something prideful. We're all included. This is not, you, you guys, you guys got to give. I'm going to work on my golf game, buy some clubs. <laughs> No, we all give. We all give. I bumped into this story. It's out of New York from the New York Post. Uh, there's a guy, you have it there on the screen, 
uh, a man named God settles lawsuit with a credit agency. Now, so what happened is this guy, you see his picture on the screen. His name is God Garazov. He's originally from Russia. He's a 27-year-old living in the Bronx. And he applied for a small business loan. And every time he got turned down. But Equifax, who is who he eventually sued, and all the other loan agencies were upfront about why they turned him down. You want to know why they turned him down? Because when they got his loan application and they saw his name at the top of the loan application, they're like, God needs a loan? They're just messing with us. Who they, what God needs a loan. And they would just dismiss it. And for months and months and months, he's like, I am not the creator of the universe. I'm just a normal guy that happens to be called God that needs a business loan. And eventually he got it. So that's God Garazov. But how about God the Father created the universe? Question, does he need a loan to have this whole Bay, Bay Hills thing keep moving forward? Then why the emphasis on giving? So let me be really clear, because Scripture says this often, and it's one of the main financial principles that you have to understand. When it comes to giving, it's never ever about giving my offering never you know why it's never yours in the first place it's always about returning it the car you drive the house you live in the jewelry you have the bank account you have none of it's yours that's it's 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 an understanding between your ears before you even decide what you're going to do when you pull your wallet out it's not a loan it's a return but when it comes to giving i'm like make this quick There's two reasons why the emphasis. I'm going to give you two words. Obedience and trust. Obedience and trust. So sometimes, here's what you're going to find on your Christian journey. Sometimes you're supposed to do what God tells you to do. Ready? Here it comes. Because he said so. As a parent, have you ever said that to your kids? But why do I have to go to bed and clean my room and eat my broccoli? Because I said so. At some point, whether you like it, whether you understand it, whether you agree with it, you have to come to an understanding that God sometimes is going to say to you, because I said so. I said so. The other factor is that there is a, a connection between your spiritual growth and giving. It's all about trust. You know, giving and specifically tithing has nothing to do with whether you love Jesus and has everything to do with whether you trust him. He he says, trust me, I got you, I got you, trust me, trust me. So here's our summary slide, let's put it up there, I'm a little bit over. Our summary slide is we got to be committed to team, we got to be committed to the word, we got to be committed to confession, we got to be committed to give. By the way, a lot of times when we talk about finances or giving, we we don't have offering at the end because we don't want anybody to feel pressured or anything we are going to have a song and an offering at the end but i gotta you gotta you know my tone you know who i am we don't know we're not twisting arms if you got to think this through you got to wrestle it through discuss with your spouse don't feel bad at all right don't be intimidated we're going to try something new this week don't be intimidated by the usher that comes down with the samurai sword that's just for some of our members (laughs) we're trying to work on our building campaign so just ignore them and (laughs) let me ask you this closing question so why are we supposed to do this on the screen? Think about it for a moment. Well, why? 
Now, my instinct when I was studying and preparing was this so that we can be better. We can be stronger. We can be healthier. It was all about we. It was all about us. And then the more I kept reading and studying, everything got turned on its head. Chapter 8, here's what we read. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters. Why temporary? Because God is continually trying to convince his people, not only in Jerusalem, but in Richmond. Listen, this earth is temporary. So hold on to things in this earth loosely. Don't get too attached. It's temporary. And then he says this. That you should proclaim this word and spread it. Spread it throughout the towns you live in. And he ends by saying, go, go, go do that. Spread it, go. Go to Richmond, go to San Pablo, go to Pinot, go to Hercules, go to Rodale, head over to Martinez and Concord, head over to to Oakland and to San Francisco, wherever you live, wherever you work, go. That's my strategy. I'm going to put my word within you. The gospel transforming word of Jesus Christ. Go and share it and spread it with other people. So why the commitment to team? Why the commitment to the word of God? Why the commitment to confession and give? It's not just about us. It's about them. It's about the people in this community that don't know Jesus. Yes, we're stronger. Yes, we're healthier. But Ezra wants to make sure we understand life isn't all about you. It's not all about me or us. It's about them. Let's pray. We're not going to take a quarter of the day, but I am going to give you 60 seconds. Spend some time in confession. What did I say or what did I do that I shouldn't have? What did I left unsaid or left undone that I should have? Just take a moment. Let's apply what we learned. Let's focus on confession. Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for the book of Nehemiah and what you've taught us. I know it was helpful to me and I, I know for many others here today over these last six, seven weeks as we just thinking about fixing things that are broken in our lives. And it was helpful to us personally. And yet this last emphasis was, was also very significant to remind us that life isn't just about me, my family, my finances, my career, my health, my marriage. While those things matter, It's also about a community that is far from you. Father, I get it. Or we're not the perfect church. We're not the perfect team. Pastor has issues. The people have issues. Our ministry have issues. We don't have a building. But we're going to do the best we can. We promise you that. As best as we can, even though sometimes we'll mess up. 
We'll do the best we can to be and follow through on the commitments you've talked to us about this morning so that we can be more effective in reaching a community that is far from you. Father, in this pre-Thanksgiving weekend, we just want to take a moment and thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son, what he's done for us in the past, what he continues to do for us in the present, and what he promises to give us in the future. We're grateful we don't take Jesus or you for granted. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.